This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I am Mike Petriello, and joining me as always is Matt Myers. We'll bring in our friend Sarah Langs to join us later on. But first, our second episode of the new show, our first since the 2020 season began just over a week ago. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the feedback. If you like it, I guess the thing to do is to give it good ratings on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. It's only been in about a week of the season, uh, but some teams are playing their sixth game of the season uh, tonight. That means we're already 10% of the way through the year, which is kind of wild to me. And I know Matt will have opinions on this as well, but from my perspective, it's been really fun to watch baseball over the last week. It's just been good to have it on to watch Giancarlo Stanton crush and Kyle Hendricks dominate and Joe Kelly make troll faces at the Astros. And it's been kind of sloppy and weird, but I know that over the weekend, um, two things happened. One is my son asked me if he could watch baseball with me, which is fantastic. And the other is I got to sit in the backyard with a beer and listen to baseball on the radio. So it's been too long without baseball, and we're so happy to have it back. Obviously, it hasn't been all good news. Justin Verlander's hurt, Corey Kluber's hurt, and the Marlins have had a pretty widespread COVID breakout after playing just three games. Their season is on pause. They won't play again until Monday. It impacts the Yankees, the Phillies, the Orioles. I think it's a good reminder of how incredibly difficult this is going to be to pull off. So every day we have baseball, I kind of consider it to be a good day, and as long as there's baseball on, uh, we'll be here to talk about it. So, Matt, hi. What has struck you about the first couple of days of weird baseball? Um, you know, to, to, to kind of your point, just kind of how the games themselves, surprisingly, I've actually, I mean, I guess some of it has been a little bit sloppy, but I still, like, have been marveling at the, the, the quality of the players and the stars in the game right now. Like, it is a remarkable, like sometimes it's easy to forget just how good baseball players are. And I was just like watching this weekend. It was a good reminder of like, wow, these guys are amazing. This is really fun. I know it's a challenging season and there's all this stuff going on in the backdrop, but like it was exciting. As you said, it was exciting to like watch baseball, to be like texting friends about baseball, to be like uh, in Slack rooms with, with coworkers talking about baseball games on the field. So um, it's exciting to be able to do this podcast again and talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got a couple segments we're going to get to today. Matt and I are going to talk about some of our first impressions. Uh, we're going to have a segment called the three batter minimum, where this week we're going to break down some of the new rules and LDH, the aforementioned three batter minimum, the extra innings man on second. Uh, Sarah Langs from MLB.com, reporter and researcher extraordinaire, will join us. Uh, we're going to think about a kind of a fascinating player who's really like struck our fancy over the first week. And at the end, we're going to have a segment called the purpose pitch which is basically an excuse for Matt and I to yell and rant uh, about whatever we want. So hopefully that's fun. There's so much that's happened like over the, the first week. And, uh, you know, some of it we'll get to with Sarah, the Padres, the Rays, Luis Robert. Um, the, the first name that has really stood out to me is, I think, Corey Seager. Like, is it fair to say that with, with all these star-studded Dodgers, he's become kind of an afterthought? Like he won Rookie of the Year a couple years ago, then he got hurt. 
and he was like just okay um so far this year one strikeout in 23 plate appearances he's got uh, uh, there's 169 hitters who have had at least 10 batted balls he has the most hard hit balls that's balls hit 95 miles an hour or more the most barrels which is a stat cast measure of the perfect combination of exit velocity and launch angle uh and the the second most often barrels per plate appearance and by all reports he looked really good in the spring and the summer as well is it fair that the dodgers might have like another star player back <laughs> because that's what it feels like I, I think we've kind of been expecting this from Corey seager you know he like came on the he, he got mv didn't he get mvp votes as a rookie uh, or was it a second uh, year? yes well i think so in the last couple of years, he's just kind of been like plodding along. And I guess it's not surprising, you know, he's at like the age where, you know, players generally quote unquote peak or historically peaked. He's 26. So um, it's, you know, I look at the, the leaderboard on Baseball Savant of like barrels right now. And obviously we're very early into the season. Barrels, as Mike said, is like the stat cast metric for like the perfectly struck batted ball that is likely to be an extra base hit. And the top three names on the list are all Dodgers. So it's kind of silly. How good they are, um, Seager, Muncie, and Justin Turner. Granted, uh, Muncie and Turner are tied at three with a bunch of other guys, but still, um, it's it's a really good team, a really deep team, and having Corey Seager is uh, at his peak, or pe- seemingly at his peak again, is kind of an embarrassment of of riches. You know, when I think about Seager, also like not to get too far ahead of ourselves, is like after the twenty twenty one season, it's supposed to be this like insane class of free agent shortstops, which was going to be led by. Uh, Francisco, like Lindor and Correa and Javi Baez were kind of the first names. And then there's also, I think, Corey Seager, uh, Corey Seager and maybe Trevor Story too are also on the list. Um, it's, and now that like he, Seager kind of become an afterthought in that group. And now it's like, oh, well, maybe not. Maybe he is like the guy we thought he was. Corey Seager right now is second in hard hit percentage, right? So 68% of the balls he's hit have been considered to be hard hit. Also on the top five, number five, Joey Gallo. Number four, Marcelo Zuna. Number three, Teoscar Hernandez. None of those names terribly surprising. Do you think you could guess who's number one on that list right now? If you didn't already see this, because I'm, um, I'm telling you the answer is no. Um, wait, um, wait, what's the what's the what's the stat we're asking? We, who's here? who's the leader in hard hit percentage right now? I mean, obviously it's someone random. I didn't even I didn't even I didn't I must I didn't even look that closely at your doc, so I missed the name. I'm gonna guess. Oh, I didn't put it in the doc. I, yeah. I'm actually I did. Here's a hint. I did tweet it at uh, at Manny uh, Randawa, one of our researchers, if that helps you at all. Um, well, then maybe it's like a Rockies guy. Is it like yeah. uh, Ryan McMahon? No. Who is it? Tony Walters, who is on a streak of, I don't have the number in front of me, but something like 450 games without a barrel. Remember, Corey Seager is at four of them in the first couple of days. Tony Walters hasn't had a barrel in like a year and a half, and he's leading baseball in the hard hit rate right now. It's early. Things are super weird. But, but on that point, I will say, I'm going back to Seager for a second. One thing, you know, we talk about a lot with StatCast metrics is what's interesting about them or what's, what, what to be mindful of is that, like, they do stabilize faster than, faster than things like batting average. So if you see a guy coming out and is, like, a really high hard hit rate or really high expected slugging, that's usually an indication. Like, that will stabilize. That will be – that's more real than – your basic batting average, your basic slugging percentage. So like, that's like, you know, we can talk about these numbers and it's still early. Tony Wolters being the perfect example of this. <laughs> um, kind of, he kind of contradicts my point a little bit, but it's like in a 60 game season, you know, it's really hard to know what's real and what's not. So like looking at expected metrics, which we'll do a lot on this show sort of helps, helps us get to those answers um, a little bit quicker. Speaking of guys hitting the ball really hard, um, another first impression for me for the season is, you know, John Carlos Stanton. 
uh, who played 18 games last year, and then in the first game, Yankees only played what three games so far, but like he's already crushed a couple of mammoth home runs. He hit, in the first game, he hit one like 450, and then came back a couple of days later and hit one like 480. So um, 483. It looks like you know um, he's uh, it's the standard. I mean, I guess that's always kind of been the case when he's healthy. He's raked, but like, I mean, there's 2017, his MVP year has always been a little bit of an outlier, right? So, like, are we seeing the 2017 stand now? Is the question. Yeah, when he was hitting well uh, the first couple of days of the season, some of the games were on ESPN. And Alex Rodriguez is one of the commentators on ESPN. And he said something along the lines of he thinks that Stanton may benefit from there being no fans in the crowd because, you know, it's been a little bit of a rough introduction. Uh, to Yankee fans. I don't know if I buy that, but certainly his best years came into a place where there never were huge fan bases. But what I always think is interesting about Stanton is he, you know, people consider him, I guess, a little bit of a disappointment as a Yankee. But even when he is healthy, he's always hit, right? Like he's hurt a lot. But even in, you know, 2018, he was healthy uh, and he was 30% better than average. And so far this year, obviously, he's crushed the ball. I thought there was a really interesting point made by Tony Wolf at Fangraphs. So Stanton hit that ball 121 miles an hour off the bat, 483 feet. It is very likely that no matter whether we play 60 games or 162 or whatever, that is already going to be the hardest hit ball of the year because what we've learned is it's basically impossible to hit the ball harder than that. Um, Stanton has the three hardest hit balls on record going back to 2015. The Yankees, by the way, have all of the top 10. And if you were to look at just the balls hit 118 miles an hour or harder, John Carl Stanton has 28. Aaron Judge has 10. Nobody else has more than three. <laughs> so we, I mean, I guess we got the fun one out of the way early. We've probably already seen the hardest hit ball of the year. And by the way, that was an absolute laser beam. There are a few things more fun, I think, than watching John Carl Stanton uh, crush baseballs. I also like weird baseball and I also, you know, the, the Royals put out, I guess you can argue whether it was six men or seven men. I think it was seven. A seven-man outfield against Miguel Cabrera. Now, that's a regular three-man outfield, but it was also four non-shifted infielders just playing deep. Nobody was on the dirt. So the first baseman was 128 feet away from home. Uh, the middle infielders were about 175. The third baseman, 160 feet away. And I saw a lot of people saying, well, why didn't Mickey just bunt? And I don't think it's in his DNA to bunt, but that's also not the point. What they were doing was showing incredible disrespect for his lack of speed, not unfairly. Last year, there were 568 qualifying players in sprint speed. That's a StatCast speed tracking metric. He was 560th. Uh, a new look from the Kansas City Royals. I mean, I guess we never thought of Mike Matheny as like an analytically inclined manager, but I liked that a lot. It's like the total right move to make against a guy like that. And you, I wonder if you will, you know, maybe start to see it even more from uh, from other teams and other players that, that fit that profile. The thing about it, like that, sort of stands out is that like a lot of times you see these these like um, severe shifts where like maybe like three guys are in short right field because they're shifting left hand hitter, but because. Miggy doesn't have like a clear spray chart. It, it looked so different because like they were equally distanced around the infield. So it wasn't just like a, sh it wasn't a shift per se. It was just like, Hey, we're going to play in our normal, like our normal, like angles relative to, you know, your traditional first base, second base, shortstop, third base positions. We're just going to each go back like 15, 20 feet. And like, you know, for me, Miggy to get, even if you want him to bunt, for him to get to bunt, to beat it out, it would actually need to be a perfect bunt because you would have to get it past the pitcher because the pitcher would still have plenty of time if, like, unless it was, like, you got it toward, the, the bunt got towards the infield dirt to 
go pick up the ball and throw at Miggy. Love to see it from the Royals. Love to see the creativity spreading um, around the game. You know, we've seen it from certain teams for years. The Royals have not been at the top of the list of like creative strategies or infield alignments. Um, and as you said, with Mike Matheny as their manager, who's kind of considered old school, um, it was definitely surprising to see them be the team that uh, that, that that broke out the uh, the Miggy. I don't know, for lack of a better word, shift, but it uh, it definitely worked, quote unquote worked. Yes, it was uh, an incredible, I guess, disrespect for lack of speed. So, hey, speed still matters, even if stolen bases aren't really a thing anymore. Um, if you don't have any speed at the plate, it will actually hurt where you have opportunities to, to drop batted balls into. So I'll be interested to see if other teams pick up on that uh, against Miguel Cabrera or if it's really only going to be the Royals. But I also got a kick out of the idea that you know we entered the year wondering if the Rays would play a two-man outfield. They, they might. And here we are talking about a seven-man outfield which I guess just goes to show that even after you know 200 years of baseball, there are still so many different ways to baseball, <laughs> which is a good thing. Um, what do you think about the Astros? Are, are you, I think when we did our season preview last week, we, I guess I picked the Astros and you picked Oakland, but we each expressed. You're done, you're done right, I did. Yeah, well, I have regrets. I have so many regrets. And this is one of them. Um, we each expressed, I think, a bit of concern about the starting rotation. We said Verlander and Granke are both very, very good, but they are, you know, on the older side in baseball terms. And McCullers is coming back from Tommy John. You don't know what you're going to get out of him. And a lot of question marks behind them. And now Justin Verlander is likely out for the season. He says he's he's not, but it seems unlikely he's going to come back and be able to, you know, do a full starting rotation. And the bullpen last night matt has copied and pasted the houston bullpen from last night into our doc and i'm like 80 percent sure he's not just screwing with me and making up some of these names i saw one of the astros b writers chandler rome tweet roberto asuna is the only healthy pitcher in the astros bullpen with more than one year of major league service time brian presley one of my favorites uh is dealing with an arm issue so is chris davinsky last night from Valdez started brought followed by enori paredes andre scrub Nivaldo Rodriguez, uh, also in the bullpen, you know, nine rookies, right? So Scrub, Paredes, Blake Taylor, Christian Javier, who's actually starting tonight, Bland, Brandon Bielak, Nivaldo Rodriguez, Cy Sneed, Brian Abreu, Brandon Bailey. They signed Fernando Rodney and acquired Hector Velasquez, who, if I'm not forgetting, and I know, Matt, you're, you're plugged into Mets Twitter, wasn't Hector Velasquez the guy who last year Brody Van Wagenen said that he was so proud to acquire him for, de for depth and Mets Twitter torched him over it? And now he's in Houston for tough. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, the, the Astros have a, like a, you know, a, a, obviously a, they've been hit by injuries pretty hard. And I think that was, you know, definitely a concern with the short season that some pitchers would have a hard time ramping up. And it's hard to know cause and effect and exactly what caused what because, you know, pitchers just get hurt generally. Um, so losing Verlander, obviously a huge blow. Ryan Presley has been maybe not one of the elite, elite relievers in baseball, but he's like, he's close to it. Uh, Davinsky also very good. So, the pitching is kind of in shambles right now because the starting pitching already lacked depth. Um, and then, I mean, when I look at the Astros, I see a team that, like, the, the window on the team might actually be closing. Um, I still think the way the playoffs are set up this year and that the fact that AL West is not that deep, they're still in a good position to make the playoffs. Um, but you look beyond this year, obviously Verlander and Greinke are both 37, so it's hard to know exactly how much, you know, how much longer they're going to, even when healthy, they're going to be dominant on the mound. The pitching coming up is there's not like a ton of depth coming up. You know, Forrest Whitley's been a big pitching prospect for a, a many years, but there's a lot of questions about how good he's going to be. 
George Springer's a free agent, and it seems there's a decent chance he's going to leave. Um, Correa is a free agent after next year. So you look at the team, and it's like, um, what looked like a juggernaut as recently as like, you know, you know, a year ago is now you're kind of starting to see like, okay, like it's, it could turn. And um, it's, um, it's kind of happening quickly. I'm not, I, you know, they, they have smart people in charge there. Um, it's not, it's not like, oh, this is all, it's, it's done. But like, it looked, you know, they've now been, you know, they, they made the playoffs that first time in 2015, which was sort of like the beginning of the beginning of the, the window. And they got, they kind of arrived a little quicker than people thought they could. But this, you know, this would be the sixth season essentially with a lot of that core. And now it's, um, I wonder if I do, I do wonder if it's closing. Yeah. I regret at the moment, not picking Oakland. Although I'll say this for, for Houston's chances, aside from the lineup being very good. If you look at the rest of the West, you know, Seattle's not really competitive. Texas lost Corey Kluber after one inning and their pitching is their strength and their lineup's not very good for the angels. Shohei Otani looked awful in his first start and to be expected a little bit shaking off the rust, but he looks very far away from being a, a strong pitcher. And although, you know, Dylan Bundy and Griffin Canning look pretty good. I still don't love their rotation. It's not like there's another team other than Oakland who I think is going to like suddenly rush the Astros uh, and take over. So that, I guess, makes it a little more interesting than it had been in the past because that had kind of been Oakland blowing over that division um, for quite some time. All right, it's time for a new segment, the three batter minimum, where we're going to hit three uh, rule changes that have happened this year. One of them is the three batter minimum. But first, the National League dh yay or nay i'm gonna say uh that would require an opinion and i I say that partially jokingly because i've never really cared about the dh that much but also because i have not noticed it at all in it in any way and i think partially that's because we've seen this you know it's been in the american league since before you and i were even born by like a decade so that's not that weird to see a dh game but it's also because it's not something that stands out in the sense like oh there's a man on second where there wasn't before it's just here comes another competent hitter instead of a pitcher hitting so I, I have to say i haven't noticed it at all um i've noticed it in just like i i, I like it i've come around i'm like I'm like 18 year old me is like um probably shaking his fist because i was used to be very adamantly anti-dh but i've come around uh, people can change their minds and just pitchers are gotten pitchers in 2019 hit 128 160 162 that's batting average on base percentage slugging they're just terrible like it's just bad. It's a bad product to watch pitchers hit. I don't care about the extra strategy because there's also strategy in you know managing a game with a DH. I don't care about the extra strategy. It is a bad product to watch pitchers hit. Um, oddly, NL DHs thus far in both leagues have been terrible thus far. And weirdly, uh, NL DHs are hitting 219, 309, 364. Um, AL DHs are hitting 185, which is just weird. Obviously, small sample size to play, uh, especially weird considering Nelson Cruz is crushing. As usual. <laughs> so it's yeah, like, he's been killing it. Non Nelson <laughs> Cruz DHs must be hitting like <laughs> 090. But um, NLDH, um, I think it's been good. Um, I kind of have a feeling it'll maybe not be here for stay, be here to stay. I wouldn't be surprised if it has next year go back to no DH. But in the next collective bargaining agreement, I would not be surprised if the DH becomes. Um, a permanent thing. All right. Uh, all right. Next topic. Batter number two in the three batter minimum. Runner on second and extra innings. The, the, the automatic runner rule that we're seeing that apparently is just for 2020. What's your take on it? Um, I don't think I can think of a rule change that 
every baseball fan has universally been as against as this. And I didn't love it at first, but I thought, you know what, I'm willing to try it. I'm willing in this weirdo year of hopefully two months of baseball just just to see it. So far, I kind of like it. I mean, the whole point is to make sure games don't go, you know, 12, 13, 14 innings. So far, that's worked. Every It's happened five times, I think, and everyone has ended, uh, four of them ended in 10 and one of them ended in 11. So it gets the job done in that sense. And, you know, it's a little weird because, you know, the strategy has changed, but it's also like kind of fascinating, you know, like you can't look away when it's on. So I'm not sure I've convinced myself into it, um, but I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. It's happened five times, four times, no one successfully bunted. Although I'll say this because everybody thinks it's going to be bunt ball in the uh, Pirates Brewers game. The Pirates did try to bunt and they did so in the correct time to do it because they were the home team. It was tied, and they had a weak hitter up who's a good bunter in Gerard Dyson. And the first time he tried to bunt, he fouled it off. And the second time he tried to bunt, he fouled it off. And then he struck out, and they lost. Because people think bunting is automatic, and it's not. Uh, It's really, really hard. I think my favorite of the five games was the first one, A's Angels. Top of the inning, Shohei Otani was the runner on second, and he immediately got doubled off trying or thrown out trying to go to third by Matt Olson. And in the bottom of the inning, Matt Olson hit a walk-off grand slam. And I think I'm struggling to think of an inning where one player has been more valuable than that because Matt Olson made a great defensive play and then he hit a walk-off grand slam in the bottom of the inning. What literally more can you do? <laughs> it, it was quite a play. I mean, because it was a Otani on second, grounded to first. Olsen snatches it. There was a cross the diamond. Matt Chapman makes an amazing scoop. My MVP pick, MVP pick Matt Chapman, for the record, makes an amazing scoop and they get Otani in a rundown um, to squelch the rally and then they win in the bottom, bottom of the half. I was very skeptical of the automatic runner, felt gimmicky. I've, I've actually really liked it um, for the reasons you mentioned. I think that it's, you know, we see this in other sports. Hockey's tried all sorts of things. Hockey, which has plenty of purists, has tried all sorts of things and over time to make it more interesting and more compelling. And I think it's been good for the game. It's generated more interest in overtime. Um, and then, like, in reality, I actually think that, like, this the this rule probably has more utility in a world where there are fans in the stands because I can't tell you how many times I've been in a game that went to extra innings and I'm like, yeah. do I stay? Yeah, do, yeah, I yeah. Go, do I go? Like, you know, and then especially like, in, in some towns, it's like, oh, is the train going to stop running? <laughs> like, the train is, it's like your 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 team's the home team, so it's like they oh they didn't score, we're going to another half of the inning, so it's like if I want to see them win, I have to stick around for a whole other full inning, and it's just like it's kind of like extra inning games during the regular season. We remember the great ones, but a lot of them are. Pretty pretty like tedious i guess <laughs> they, they, they turn into home run derbies because everybody's just trying to be the guy who ends it i think going forward in the future i might be i might be more willing to have it start in like the 11th inning or something right like you get an extra inning or two of regular ball and if you still can't figure it out then you start putting guys on i, I think, think that we, might be like a happy compromise and of the five that's probably that we've had four into the 10th and one end in the 11th is that right yeah, that's right. I know I know Mets fans are really unhappy about the loss they had in one of those, but I gotta be honest. Their problem was not the runner on second. The problem was Hunter Strickland pitching for the Mets. <laughs> Cause he got killed. Uh but yeah, um you know I, I, so far so good. I like it. I think it's definitely good for the for the short season for for uh for the reason you mentioned. So this segment we're doing this segment, which may become a regular segment, we're just kind of trying out right now, called the three batter minimum. Our third batter in this segment, appropriately for the first ever one, is the three batter minimum rule. What do you think of it so far? 
well, I have loved this idea for years. Um, I know people think I'm supposed to like it because of where I write, but I've, I love this before I even worked at MLB.com. The problem I've had with it so far is it's really hard to track. You know, there's it's not easy to to find examples of where this guy would have come in or not come in. So there's not like a ton of examples that stand out to me. I know you have a good one from the Braves game the other day. Uh, I like the idea, but I've always sort of thought that it wouldn't, be that noticeable right like there just haven't been that many examples of it it'll cut down on some pitching changes it's not going to make the game quicker but nobody likes to see mitting pitching changes so i love the idea even though i can't say it's meaningfully changed my baseball experience this year yeah i think you'll, you'll see you'll, i think what you're going to see is a lot of pitching changes with two outs in an inning so that like you because you if you get three batters over the course of two innings that counts so it's like you maybe bring someone in hopefully as a specialist maybe at the end of an inning and then based on the the, the context of things to open the next inning you decide okay, I'm going to have this guy um, start the next inning or am I going to do a replacement in, 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 between, in between innings? But yeah, there was an example on Saturday in the Mets-Braves game that I thought was like a perfect example of like why the rule is awesome. So it was the, it was, sorry, it was the, top, the top of the eighth. Um, the Braves have a batter on first base and left-handed hitting Matt Adams coming up. Um, the Mets decide to bring in left-handed pitcher Justin Wilson to face Matt Adams, and which was like a little bit of a calculated risk because like the Reds did have, I mean the Reds, the Braves did have a right-handed batter on the bench, but only one man left on the bench, Denny Hechevary, who's not a great hitter. And he was also the last guy on the bench, so it was it was that that alone was like a calculated risk on the part of Mets manager Luis Rojas. I'm like, okay, I'm going to bring in a lefty because I think he's going to get this lefty out and get me out of this inning uh, with a, with a one-run lead. Of course, behind Matt Adams is Ronald Acuna Jr. You know one of the elite players in the National League. So it's, it's definitely a risk because if Adams gets on, you're basically saying, okay, now I have to have Justin Wilson, a, left, a good left-handed hitter, good left-handed pitcher, but like not by no means like, you know, he's not Josh Hader, right? Face one of the best right-handed hitters in the league. Like this is a risk. Of course, Matt Adams hits a single, sets up first and third with Acuna coming up. And to me, I love this. Instead of having like some like right-handed like, you know, dude who can throw like a slider at 92 miles an hour to face Acuna, not saying that Acuna couldn't hit that guy, but to suddenly be in a situation where like you took this risk to bring in Wilson against Adams, and now you have to pay the price of having your left-handed reliever face a, a, a dominant right-handed hitter. You know, it's like you don't, in the past, you didn't see a lot of these matchups where like you'd get star batters in late innings with the platoon advantage. And I think that that's, I, I like that. I, I, I like that. That's sort of like the way the way it played out. So that was the kind of thing I like to see with, when the, when the rule was first instituted, and I'm uh, I hope to see more of it. Here's what I've learned about all of these rule changes. Every single one. Fans love them when it benefits their team, and they hate it when it doesn't benefit the team. The Rays. Uh, Kevin Kiermaier had a walk off win in extra innings the other day, and the Rays Twitter account tweeted immediately afterwards. Oh, we love the rule. This is great. <laughs> You know, uh, it always comes down to what, I guess, makes your own fan base happy. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back with MLB.com's Sarah Lang. And we welcome in our friend and colleague, Sarah Langs, a writer and researcher from MLB.com, and perhaps the person I know who I think loves baseball more than anybody else, because I don't think anyone tweets with such joy about baseball um, as you do, so... Thank you for bringing that, and uh, thanks for joining us. How have you enjoyed the season so far? Thank you guys so much for having me, and thank you so much for that. It's been it's been a lot of fun. I mean, it's just really exciting to watch games again, you know? I mean, so much going on, but to just sit down, watch a game, see some home runs, see Mike Trout doing things, see Anthony Rendon hitting a home run in an Angels uniform, I mean, it's just been a blast. 
it seems like one of the teams that has stood out to you the most, um, and look who you're talking to here, the Tampa Bay Rays, because they look sort of unstoppable to me. What's what's your most favorite part about them so far? Oh my gosh, they've been so much fun. It's like what we've been hoping they would be, like firing on all cylinders for, I feel like, the last maybe five years now, especially from the stats perspective, especially for you and all of us working on StatCast. I feel like they're just such a dream, and it's so great to see them succeeding so much right now. I really have an eye on their pitching. I mean, they're third in the majors in strikeouts. They've induced 120 swinging strikes, which is second most in the majors behind the Reds, who lead in pitching strikeouts, which is probably a thing for another day. Uh, but it's also interesting. And they had 19 strikeouts in a nine-inning game the other day. I mean, they're just absolutely crushing everybody. That was a team record, right? Yeah, it was most in a nine-inning game in franchise history. Can I, can I be a buzzkill for like one quick second? Uh, Charlie Morton's velocity was down from 94.7 to 92.2. And I guess at this you know early point in a weird season, you can give anybody a pass. But then also the Braves cut loose Mike fulton after like one single day of bad velocity. So that at least worries me um, a little bit. Is the best moment of the season so far watching G-Man Choi hit homers from both sides of the plate, or at least takes at-bats from both sides of the plate? Absolutely. I, th- I think that that is like already something that we're going to be seeing on every like week highlight show and everything else for the rest of the year and probably into next year. Uh, tried to look into most plate appearances from one side of the plate and then hit a home run from the other. That's really difficult to find out. Not a lot of guys do this, as we know. But I did find that Javi Baez was the last player with as many plate appearances as G-Men Choi had from one side of the plate and then taking even a plate appearance on the other side. He took a plate appearance from the left-hand side last year in August against a catcher on the red. So very different kind of situation. And he did not homer. But G-Men Choi, after 861 plate appearances from the left side, a strikeout from the right side, and then that home run. Just what what even is going on? I think yeah, I was like watching that game, um, and it was like it was, I almost had like a triple take. I was like, wait, I like did that really just did that really just happen? I mean, he had he had he actually apparently uh, I asked our, our Rays beat reporter Juan Trivia, who was on our last episode about this. Apparently, he'd been you know kind of messing around with batting right handed during summer camp, and he'd had some experience as a right hander in in the minors back in 2015, but he hadn't taken an at bat as a right-hander in a professional game since winter ball in uh, since November of 2015 in the Dominican winter league. So uh, it's been, it's been a minute as they say. So seeing him home, th- seeing him at a, hit a home run uh, for the right side was pretty amazing. It reminded me of the time that um, LeBron just randomly took a free throw lefty in a playoff game. And yes, I am saying that G-Man Choi is LeBron. Um, wow. Uh, baseball. I mean, um, <laughs> heard it here an- first. <laughs> another sort of uh, under the radar team that we've loved to talk about on this show in its various forms over the years is the San Diego Padres. Who have first earned place a lot, Padres. <laughs> who have earned a, lot of, earned a lot of plaudits for those new uniforms. But really, it's the play on the field that I think has really, has really stood out. So what has stood out to you about the Padres thus far? Yeah, so one fun thing about both of these teams is that they're tied for second in the majors in run differential, which is just a lot of fun. We have the Dodgers leading at plus 15. Obviously, it's early. But then it's the Padres and the Rays at plus 14. And I just, I love this for the stats world. I love this for all of us. I love it for everyone who wants to see those uniforms into October. But what's really impressed me about them is how patient they've been at the plate. We know that this is really, for the most part, a really young team. 
Last year, they were not patient at the plate. They were 17th in pitches per plate appearance, not 30th, but certainly not towards the top. This year, they're leading the majors, obviously in the early goings, but this has been true starting with like the second game of the season. They're seeing 4.3 pitches per plate appearances, most in the majors. They're second in the majors in walk rate. They were 18th last year. And it feels like, you know, some guys like maybe Tommy Pham and Hosmer getting off to a good start is sort of helping to temper the enthusiasm or whatever else it may be of the young players. And they're just so much fun to watch. I mean, they won that game against the Giants last night. You had Mike's favorite, Drew Pomerantz, nailing down the save in his former ballpark. It was very, very exciting. I was thinking how the fans would have been reacting had they been there, but that was just such a fun moment. And you have Will Myers playing along, along with Trent Grisham after they won. It's like, this is a team you want to see do so well because they are so much fun. Yeah, I was thinking about this. The, the Padres probably have, you know, everybody's got their guys, right? And I think the Padres have the highest rate of their guys to total guys of any team in baseball. Like the Giants have no guys that I, I really want to see that much, but the Padres have a ton of guys. And as a, a New Yorker with two small kids and the Padres playing an entirely West Coast schedule, uh, or at least Western Division schedule, I feel like I'm not going to get to stay up to the end of too many Padres games this year because they're very late. And it's disappointing because you look at the roster, right? Tatis is everybody's guy. Uh, Tommy Pham is everybody's guy. Drew Pomerantz, as you mentioned, is totally my guy. Three innings, six strikeouts, one walk. Uh, Emilio Pagan, since he's been with the, the Rays and traded, has been one of our guys. Denelson Lamette. And um, the peak guy of any guy, Luis Perdomo, still kicking around. Not my guy. Uh, Matt's, Matt's guy. So, Matt, please, <laughs> jump in. Well, as, as the world foremost uh, Luis Perdomo scholar, I'd like to jump in here uh, and talk a little about his one his one appearance thus far on the uh, on the season. As longtime listeners of our podcast know, I've been a fan of Luis Perdomo going back to, I guess, his rookie year of 2016, where he just sort of randomly started popping up on on uh, StatCast leaderboards. He's not exactly been able to put it together to this point um, in any way that would suggest, you know, stardom. But there are glimpses here and there. And he showed some glimpses in his one outing of the year so far. Two innings pitched, um, scoreless, uh, one walk, um, six ground balls, one strikeout. Vintage Perdomo getting the ball. He, he's got that that nasty two-seamer, gets, keeps the ball on the ground. Small sample size, I know, but his... Average launch angle against in that game was negative 23 degrees. So he was definitely getting to pound the ball on the ground, throwing his split-fingered fastball a lot more than he has in the past. So that's something to be mindful of for those of you who follow uh, Luis Perdomo. We talk a lot about, you know, guys we like. I can tell you who's a guy who we have never really liked that much, Eric Hosmer. Uh, he got this monster contract, and he wasn't he was okay in the first year for San Diego and kind of lousy last year. And the story has always been the same. Yes, he hits the ball pretty hard, but he always hits it on the ground. And he's had, you know, up years and down years and never really seemed interested in changing it. Now, I don't want to put too much emphasis on three games and 12 plate appearances. Eric Hosmer so far has nine batted balls, zero grounders, <laughs> which I can't get over. I looked this up three times to make sure I didn't screw it up. Five liners, four fly balls, and one pop-up. Now, sometimes when you see a guy... Um, he's not quote unquote buying into the launch angle revolution or whatever. That's just not him. But when you see a guy trying to change the way they hit the ball like that, sometimes it comes with a decrease in hard contact. You know, maybe the hard contact comes on the ground. And if you're trying to hit it in the air, you lose some of that hard contact. Well, last year he had a 46% hard hit rate. And so far this year, he has a 67% hard hit rate. Again, 12 plate appearances. I don't want to go nuts here, but I might go so far as to say he's been more valuable in these 12 plate appearances than over the entirety of the previous two years. 
And if that's true, if he's really like maybe a new man, then suddenly I like this first place San Diego lineup um, a whole lot more than I already did. And by the way, Chris Paddock's new curveball looks fantastic. Garrett Richards' old curveball looks fantastic. As you said, Drew Pomerantz, I am extremely in on this Padres team. Like, now they're not going to probably top the Dodgers, uh, but they're going to make noise. They're going to get in the playoffs. I love the stat that you have that they've got seven stolen bases and nine teams have zero. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, t- Tommy Pham has four stolen bases already, but he's actually he, he's only been on base he's only reached base safely six times. But he's taking he's taking advantage of his opportunities. That is a that is like a a Vince Coleman esque stolen base ratio of of uh, stolen bases to uh, to times on base. Uh, you know, another another young player really opening eyes this year is. Uh, my AL Rookie of the Year pick, Luis Robert. And Sarah, can you tell us a little about what has made him so special this far? Yeah, he's been so much fun to watch. I feel like he's been as advertised. Obviously, we're talking about five games, but you know, we hear about the five-tool player, and he's already made two four-star catches. He's tied for the most four or five-star catches in the majors this year. Yes, the number is two, but you know, hopefully that continues, and he's looked really good on all of those, and he's making them look easy, which is just so much fun to see. He's shown the speed. He had a 30-plus uh, sprint speed on a single the other day, which is in that elite range, 27 MLB average, 30 is elite. And he's 7 for 19 with a hit in every single game he's played in so far. I mean, he's just he's getting on base for them. And they have not – I think that people might have expected them to do maybe what the Padres are doing right now, be that team that we thought would be a next-year team, but instead they're here early. The White Sox have not done that overall to start, but he has certainly uh, not been at fault there whatsoever because he's been doing it all for them. At the end of the show, Matt and I are each going to do our purpose pitch, which is a rant. And mine is about the White Sox. So I'm going to I'm gonna defer on their lineup for a minute. But I'll say, entering the season, I thought they'd hit. And I was worried about their starting rotation. And then Giolito gave up a home run on literally the first pitch of the season. And it's been sort of downhill since there. Now Max Kepler is very good, right? So that happens. Uh, but Ronaldo Lopez looked terrible, and now he's hurt. And... Uh, Dylan sees can't throw strikes and Dallas Keuchel may be their most reliable starter. And that is sort of terrifying to me if you're trying to win this year. Yeah. You know, they were, they, they are, I should say were. I will stick with them as my AL central pick. I'd probably walk that back right now if I could, but you know, uh, I'm not going to, you know, we'll, we'll see if it turns around. The pitching has looked shaky. The lineup is maybe the most, maybe not, I want to say the most dynamic, but among the most dynamic in baseball, a lot of fun. Robert has been just a joy uh he has uh he can he can do everything he literally like you watch him it's like oh this is actually like people throw the the term around um you know five tool player and like there aren't many actual five tool players and like we're already seeing like it passes the eye test and the stat cast metrics are telling us oh yes this is like this is what a five tool um player looks like speaking of players who get talked about as uh five tool players um there's a couple actually that probably fit the bill uh, one of whom, Mike Trout, who I believe just became eligible for the Hall of Fame officially, finally, um, this week, um, and Javi Baez. They both did something that had never been they'd never done before. And what, what was that, Sarah? Yeah, so they both homered on 3-0 counts in this first week that we've had, and neither of them had done that before. And Trout did it on Sunday. It was a really big deal. Everyone was talking about it. It was 200, his 211th career plate appearance in a 3-0 count, just the second time he'd even gotten a hit. He had a single in 2015. He hadn't even swung in a 3-0 count since 2016 in September. So that's about what we expect out of Mike Trout. I mean, why would he necessarily be swinging in those counts anyway? He's going to take those walks. 
Javi Baez then on Tuesday did the exact same thing. <laughs> he had a 3-0 count. He had a home run. It was the first time he'd ever done that. I don't think you could really come up with two more disparate players in terms of how they swing, how they approach, how much they swing, how often they would even get to a 3-0 count. So I, I did some uh, d- uh, digging on this, which continued for a while. Um, so it was Javi Baez's 56th career plate appearance in a 3-0 count. He also had one single in a 3-0 count, just like Trout. Uh, since he became an everyday player in 2016, he's had 52 3-0 counts, which is tied for 68th in the majors. Trout, in that same span, has had 117, which is third behind only Bryce Harper and Joey Votto. And Javi Baez swung in a 3-0 count four times last year compared to Mike Trout, who did not do that since 2016. And then this is where I, I went very deep onto the baseball savant searching. So Javi Baez has a 37% swing rate in 3-0 counts since 2016. That's fourth highest in the majors in that span among guys who've had at least 50 plate appearances in a 3-0 count. Ahead of him are only Ronald Acuna Jr., Josh Bell, and Michael Franco. And all of them, except for Bell, have hit at least one homer in a 3-0 count. And now Javi Baez has two. And it's just crazy to me because these guys have completely different approaches at the plate. And here they are doing something for the first time each. So who was number one on that swing rate list on 3-0 pitches? Was that Michael Franco was number one? It was Acuna, 42%. So 42% when it went on a 3-0 count, yes. Ronald Acuna Jr. swings 40% of the time. Yes. Wow. That's... that's that, that. <laughs> Right? I did not know. I did not know that. That seems like a lot. I gotta say. Yep. <laughs> in what may be related news, Ronald Acuna has like a fifty percent strikeout rate to start the season. <laughs> yes. He's, he's, um, he's, he's my, my my some of my picks, such as Oakland winning the AL West, have been looking a little better. Some of my other picks, such as oh, uh, the White Sox winning the Central and Acuna winning MVP, are yeah. looking a little looking a little less good right now. Because you know, as you said, it's a tenth of the way through the season, like. It's it's at some point it's gonna be hard for Acuna to, to to make up some of the uh, make up some of the ground that he's that he's losing right now. Yeah, I know you said earlier that Mike Trout is now eligible for the Hall of Fame, but I prefer to think of it that the Hall of Fame is now eligible for Mike Trout. <laughs> well said. Yes. <laughs> uh, Sarah Langs, thank you very much for joining us. I'm sure we'll have you back on again soon. Awesome. Thank you guys for having me. All right, we'll be right back with a few more segments. Our thanks to Sarah Langs. We are back with a, a couple more things to talk about. We are going to try to shed some light on a player you might not know that much about. And I have gone with incredibly obscure. I have gone with a Rule 5 reliever who plays for the Mariners. At least Matt went with a first-round draft pick. Um, so I guess that means some people may have heard of your guy. But tell us a little bit about the guy you want to talk about. Uh, I want to talk about Kyle Lewis uh, because... You know, he's been off to a good start on the bat. He got some attention the other day. He's a Mariners outfielder, the number 11 overall pick in the 2016 draft out of Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. Um, not exactly a baseball powerhouse, but um, it's taken relative to other like high picks out of college. He is taking a little bit of time to develop, but um, as the, the Mariners kind of go through their youth movement, he's starting to show some signs. He hit a home run at 110 miles an hour off of uh, Justin Verlander the other day before Verlander went on the, um, went on the IL. So that's, you know, a really good sign. And his, his other hitting indicators are, are, are pretty strong. Um, his expected weighted on base so far this season is not, is in the 90th percentile. Um, 
He hits the ball really hard. He strikes out way too much, I'll admit, thus far in his uh, young career. He's striking out 40% of the time this season. That said, there's another stat, stat cast metric we have called sweet spot percentage, which is basically like, uh, you might be able to describe it a little better than I do. It's basically like wh- what percentage of time you put it in like the a good uh, an optimal launch, launch angle to get a base hit. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, instead of average launch angle, average can be kind of misleading. It says, how often do you get the ball between 8 degrees and 32 degrees, which is really like the sweet spot of success. Think of it as the hard hit rate average uh, against average exit velocity, but just of launch angle. And so, yeah, on his, in his young career thus far, his sweet spot percentage is, is, is over 48, 47%, which is like, which is elite. Granted, we're talking about 100 plate appearances going back to last year. Um, so it's, you know, it's something to keep an eye on, especially with that strikeout rate. But that, to me, for, for a guy with that much power, that's a really good sign. You know, your elite leaders are, are at in the low 40s. So the fact that even a small sample, he's got some, he's got some room almost to like kind of go down and still, and still be able to make use of his power. Um, last night, he's a, in playing center field for the Mariners. He had a, a catch, a diving catch off a line drive with a catch probability of 15%. That's what we would call a five-star catch in stat cast terminology. So the Mariners, they're not very good right now, but there's a lot to like. You've got Kyle Lewis. Um, who's still eligible for rookie of the year and could very good rookie of the year contender. Maybe um, he's going to could battle Luis Robert, Robert for that, uh, for that honor. They've got uh, Jared clinic coming up behind him. Who's making noise and something in their, uh, and like the, uh, the satellite squad uh, for the Mariners, Julio Rodriguez, another great young hitter who's hurt, but also a lot of promise. So there's, if you're a Mariners fan, there's a lot to be excited on the position player front front and maybe on the pitching front as well? Well, I went with a, a Mariner, and I, I'm telling you, this is this is obscure, right? Rule 5 guy, uh, Johan Ramirez. And it's okay if you didn't know who that was. He was in the Astros minor league system last year. And uh, there, I'll tell you why he stood out to me in a second. But first, just a little bit of a backstory on him. Last year in the minor leagues, there were 436 pitchers who threw at least 100 innings. 436 pitchers. He had a strikeout rate of just under 34%, and that was eighth best of 436 guys. So now you know one thing about him. He strikes out a lot of players. Now, why was he available in the Rule 5 draft? Because of those 436 pitchers, exactly zero had a higher walk rate. So he walks a ton of guys, and he strikes out a ton of guys. That's an interesting package. Well, I noticed the other day when I was looking at the early data, uh, the pitch movement data, that he was standing out with incredible movement on his slider. His horizontal break on his slider is 11 inches more than average at his velocity. That's the second most in baseball. That's almost an extra foot of movement. So I said to myself, I have no idea who this guy is, but that's an insane number. I need to go watch him. And I saw him pitch against the Astros the other night. This called strike to George Springer, it actually made the Houston broadcasters laugh, and they couldn't believe what they'd seen. So I actually clipped this. Listen to this for a second. Puffs the slider in it. Baseball is a should be a legal break. Baseball sucks. <laughs> you're 0 for 3 with three strikeouts, and you face a guy who throws 95 and then paints a slider, and you're down 0-2 immediately. So even though on this podcast you cannot see that pitch, you could hear those broadcasters, and you know there's something special there. Now again, he does not throw strikes. Uh, he had the highest walk rate in the minors last year. I get it. But if you are going to make a shot at a Rule 5 pick, and you have a guy with a pitch like that, you figure maybe you can get him to throw strikes. I get it. Now I know something about Johan Ramirez, uh, and so do you. But we're going to be doing this as a regular segment on the show, kind of like pulling out fascinating players from around, around the league that you may not be uh, as familiar with. And 
you can be sure that Mike will have a reliable list of relievers that you've never heard of who can <laughs> throw 98 with a, a, a 90, 91-mile-an-hour slider that breaks three feet because, like, every team seems to have, like, four of those guys right now. It's not always going to be a reliever, but, yeah, it's probably always going to be a reliever. All right, we're going to finish this off with our purpose pitches. Matt and I are both going to have a rant, and uh, Matt's rant is actually really good because it kind of gets to something that I've been talking about for, like, I don't know, eight years now. Uh, here's my rant. Uh, the White Sox, as I referenced earlier, were expected to be a much improved team this year. I had some reservations about their rotation, but I thought that they would hit. So far, they're off to a one and four start, and that's uh, not great considering how short the season is. Now, if you know me at all, you know that I am a person who does not care about batting order. Batting order doesn't really matter as long as you put the best six guys in the top six and the weakest three guys in the bottom three. That gets you like 90% of the way there. So I want to preface that because, again, I don't care about batting order, and I have complaints about the White Sox batting order. On Sunday, hitting second. Now, this is a team with Tim Anderson, Moncada, uh, Eli Jimenez, I know he's hurt a little bit, <laughs> Luis Robert, Grandal, Abreu, Encarnacion. Hitting second on Sunday was Nicky Delmonico, who has a career line of 224, 312, 385, uh, which is bad. On, let's see. Tuesday, he hit cleanup. Luis Robert, who, as Sarah educated us, has been crushing the ball, is hitting seventh. And as the game ended, they lost 5-3. Nicky Delmonico, who is a left-handed hitter, was on deck while Cleveland was closing out the game with a left-handed pitcher. I don't understand what Rick Renteria is doing. I know that last year they had the second most sacrifice bunts, I think, in baseball. And, um, wow, I just got distracted. Breaking news, Nick Markakis is back. That's interesting. I didn't know you could do that, but he is unopted out and he's back with the Braves. I've distracted myself. Anyway, stop hitting Nicky Delmonico cleanup. That's my rant. Well, you have me know that I just saw this uh, friend of the show, Casey Boguslaw, just tweeted out uh, with uh, many exclamation points, the White Sox lineup for today, um, which is maybe you've like sort of like your brainwaves went, got to Rick Renteria before we recorded. Their lineup is batting first, Tim Anderson, followed by Yon Mancada, Jose Abreu, Yasmani Grandal, Evan Encarnacion, Eloy Jimenez, Luis Robert, Lurie Garcia, and Adam Engel hitting ninth. So, at least for today. Yeah. 10% of the way through the season. There's there's no time to screw around with this. Um, by the way, Eloy Jimenez, I, I like him very much. I He needs to be a DH not because of fielding skill, even though I don't think he's a great outfielder. He is a danger to himself and others in the outfield. Last year, uh, he hurt himself jumping into a wall and ran over, I want to say, Adam Angle. I can't remember who the outfielder was. This year, he hurt himself running into a wall. That's three times in the last, like, you know, four months of baseball uh, where he's injured himself in the outfield. And I, I like his bat so much, I would like him to stay healthy. So uh, I feel like he needs to be a DH for his own safety. My purpose pitch rant, if you will, is actually a little bit stolen from the Mike playbook, but uh, I'll go with it because I was being driven crazy this weekend when the Rockies were playing the Rangers in the Rangers' new ballpark, Globe Life Field, and no one was scoring any runs. And I kept hearing, and I'm not going to name names because it's not important. It's not that important. Also, I admit that, you know, I say dumb stuff too a lot, and that you can call me out when I do. I saw multiple people uh, saying on, on, on Twitter and on TV, like, oh, it's, you know, it's surprising. You know, the high-scoring Rockies and Rangers, these are two teams that score a lot of runs. It's surprising that this is... Such a low-scoring series. People, we need to stop thinking of the Rockies <laughs> as a high-scoring team, especially on the road. Yes, literally at home because of the mile-high air, 
they score a lot of runs at home, but it's because of the environment. On the road, the Rockies historically have been a terrible offensive team. Last year, as a team, we're just going to go straight OPS, no advanced metrics, no nothing. Their OPS on the road was 678, 678, which ranks 29th out of 30 teams. The year before, in 2018, it was 665, which ranks 27th out of 30 teams. In 2017, they were a little better. They had a 703 OPS, which ranked all the way up on 23rd out of all 30 teams. This team is awful at hitting on the road, and it's not even their fault. Like the diff- that we discussed this on the show, Mike's written about this. A huge part of it is the fact they have to go from playing at the mile high air of, of Denver and then go on the road where the ball moves differently. So they're constantly changing, changing, going from an ext- one extreme environment to another, which makes it really hard to adjust. And especially this year, because every remember every team did summer camp at their home park. So the Rockies actually spent a month only seeing pitches at Coors Field from their own pitchers and then had to open on the road. So it is not surprising they did not score any runs at, at Texas. And not for nothing, so far, early returns, it looks like that new park might be a pretty severe um, uh, pitcher's park. There have been uh, four games there, and no team has scored more than five runs in a game thus far in the uh, in the four games that have been played at the new uh, Globe Life Field. Oh, you are you are reaching into my baseball heart right here because this is something I've been on about for for many years and have written about several times. Um, I'm not so sure about the park being a pitcher's park just yet because both of those teams in the, in that series uh, sent out some pretty good starting pitchers and both of those lineups are weak. You're right about them hitting on the road, but it's also look at the Rockies lineup. Story's a star. Arenado's a star. Blackman's you know maybe on the decline, but he's still an above average hitter. And that's sort of where I jump off. Oh, David Dahl, I guess, I like when he's healthy. Um, they added nothing, literally nothing last winter. And I don't think they, anybody can be surprised when they don't hit very well. That is a great rant. I wish I had thought of it myself. And um, I appreciate that you brought that up. That is our show for this week. This is the MLB Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back uh, in a few days. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.